Hey guys, today in the podcast we have The Great Hippo, author of Science Bugs, The Counting Station, Video Game Violence, and many other SCPs. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure you follow us or review us if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. The more you guys help me out means the more time I can put into the podcast. Thanks. All right, so thanks for coming out to the podcast, Great Hippo. It's good to have you. Um, as tradition, I always like to start with this question, but uh, how did you get into SCP, if you still remember? Um, I actually read the parts of, like back on Series 1 when it was only Series 1. I think in 2011, I actually stumbled on it and read it, and I loved it. I remember the first article that I ever read was um, Sands of the All-Consuming Sands of Tool or whatever, the one with the little bugs that are like sand. Mm. can't remember what it's... Uh, yeah, Sands of Tool, ever-consuming Sands of Tool or something. And I remember just really, really liking it and leaving and never thinking about it again until I think 2016 or 2017 when um, for some reason I ended up back at the wiki reading articles and just thinking, you know, I bet I could try writing one of these. So I just did. And that's basically okay. it. Did you have experience writing beforehand or was like SCP really like the beginning of your journey as a writer? Um, no, I, well, I mean, not professionally, but I've always written just nonsense on the internet and like fan fiction crap and all that sort of stuff. And I've always loved horror, uh, spooky horror stories, and writing them and telling them to other people. And um, I think also a background in education, uh, essay writing. I've done a lot of that. Uh, like uh, being able to write polished essays and that sort of thing, which informs a lot of my writing. Uh, so, is that because were you like a teacher or was it more just very briefly working yeah. in a? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay, so that's interesting. Um, were you an English teacher? No, uh, history actually. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, but English would have been my second choice. Okay, this is, I think this is the first uh, author I've talked to who was actually a teacher um, before they. Uh, kind of uh, became an author mm -hmm. um, on the page. Fun fact. It was very um, brief, though, I should I should mention. But like, I didn't, okay, I didn't okay. stick with it. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, so you weren't a teacher then. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to present that for me. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, so well, I'll dig into that a little later, because I mm -hmm. think that's kind of interesting about the history and probably how I'm sure it relates to some of your articles. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, if you have any, like, personal favorites uh scp wise what are those i have a a, a, a weird fondness for that um all-consuming sands of tool article which i don't think in retrospect is actually very good but it just has a mm. deep nostalgia for me yeah the creeping yeah. hungry sands of tool scp 165 which it's just for some reason it's always it was my first one and it just for some reason stuck in my head because when i read it, it it had a it was the first time i experienced a story told in that sort of uh, uh, approach which hmm. always kept it kind of stuck in my head but after actually reading more of the the um wiki i think more of my favorite articles would probably be stuff like uh you see it wasn't there uh by dj cactus i think it is 2470 which is an article about an attic uh basically in a house that the foundation 
can't get into for some reason. And the article has a very, very dreamlike quality. But the other thing I love about it is that it is effectively using nothing to scare you, like the, the concept of nothing. Mm. Because it wasn't there. There was nothing in the attic. But it still managed to be terrifying in certain ways. And I just love the image for it, too. If you look at the image, the image for it is perfect. It's just an image of an attic with, you know how a VHS have tracking errors that sometimes go across mm -hmm. the screen? It has that yeah. in the middle of it. And if you look just below it, you can see something below the tracking error, like it had just gotten washed off of, by the tracking mm. error. And it's just such a great, creepy image. And the whole article just is very off-putting in a way that I enjoyed. It's probably my favorite type of approach. The other article that I often uh, would talk about loving is um, Min Min's 2747, As Above, So Below. Or is it As Below, So Above, pardon me which is a metafictional article that's kind of hard to describe, but it's just, um, it has, it, it, it's basically about an anomaly about um, uh, hints of stories and, and, and works of art, like people having conversations about works of art and stories that don't seem to exist. Like uh, Radiohead's, Radiohead's uh, I.O. album. Like you find an internet discussion about Radiohead's I.O. album. It's like Radiohead never made an I.O. album. And it's just like that all over the place. Just these bits of, of artistic work that are out there that there are hints that they should exist, but they don't. And the article is about why they don't and what happened. And it is so a, basically uh, basically the Mandela effect. Yes. Yeah. But but yeah. but it's, it's not just that. If it was just that, it would be kind of boring. But the idea is what's happening to these pieces. And it's spoiler. Something is eating them. And mm. and even deeper spoiler, which is what makes the article great, is that as it goes and goes, you realize that the article itself is fulfilling all the um, requ requisites to be eaten. And so is the foundation. Like, you realize at the end that, that what's eating all these things is, is coming for us. Mm. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Yeah, yeah. It, it has a very sort of Twilight Zone feel. But the thing I like about it is it never explicitly says this. It's more mm. really realization the reader comes to, mm. which is a very, very difficult trick to pull, and probably one of my favorite. Where, where you don't, you don't do the Twilight Zone thing where you say, you know, the call is coming from inside the house. You get the reader to realize that themselves. Mm. The, yeah. the reader says, "Oh my God, the call is coming from inside the house," but you never said it, so it doesn't have that sort of. Uh, it doesn't feel forced, if that makes sense. Which yeah, and, and you trust that your audience is smart enough to right. kind of pick right. up the clues. And to real, have that realization. And if you can get that realization at, a, at just a single moment by just offering them just a single piece of information that seems innocuous on its own, but when they read it, it hits them, that's great. Do you know, do you remember how they try to contain that one? They, that, that's, that's actually how, um, that's, how that, that's the point, is the containment procedures they keep mentioning. Uh, check out these containment procedures or for how we're containing it. Check out these containment procedures for how we're containing it. Uh, it's called Lucid Chalice is the name of the procedure. And at mm. the end, you go to open up the Lucid Chalice file and it's gone. And you're like, mm. oh, crap. It ate the containment procedure, which means it's coming for us next. Yeah, it's a, it's a really nice way of doing it. I like mm. that. Uh, I think I've read that one. Honestly, I've I've been reading... SCPs on and off for the past six years, seven mm -hmm. years, I think. So it gets uh, kind of blurry, especially with my memory. Oh, yeah. Um, they all start to streamline together after a while. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, I will say, speaking of like things eating or destroying literary works, I think mm. that's a good segue to one of your favorite articles that you've written, uh, SP4028, um, the Don Quixote. Uh, most people probably know it as the Don Quixote. Right, uh, Don Quixote one. Um, and for people who don't know about it, how would you kind of it, it's briefly the, spin it? I would just say it, the SCP is Don Quixote. It, Don Quixote is an SCP now. <laughs> Basically, all I would tell them <laughs> is like, yeah, yeah, Don Quixote is an SCP, sure. And like, he's a fictional character and he's an SCP, and that's the basic starting point of the article. Even though, if you read the article, it's not actually him, but that that's kind of still the jumping off point that I would use. And yeah, actually, I wrote that so, kind of like Min Min stuff is one of the reasons not, not it was the direct inspiration for that, but it's kind mm -hmm. of what pushed me in that direction for other articles that led up to that. Mm, yeah. And then uh, you also mentioned another SP in that one, uh, 423. Um, oh, who, Fred. Fred, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love Fred. So, he's, he's so I thought that was kind of cool that you pulled in another literary SCP. Mm -hmm to deal with this literary based SCP. I've used him a couple of times in a couple of my articles, just cause I like the idea of, of um, like, have you ever heard of pataphysics in, in SCP? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, generally, I don't like pataphysics, even though I've written like seven pataphysics articles <laughs> at this point. <laughs> yeah. but, but I don't like most of them because most of them just end up being like, haha, the foundation's fictional. I was like, I, I don't care. Like, mm. It's just boring. but. But like I, I like the idea of a pataphysics department. I, I go into one of the other articles I wrote. I think uh, one of the Murphy Law ones, the second one, uh, three one four three, where it's the found the the, the the idea behind the pataphysics department is it is a fic fictional department. It does not exist. The foundation made it up, mm. and they made it up because that's the only way they could think of to combat fictional anomalies. It's like, how do you fight fictional anomalies with a fictional department? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. the entire mm. idea is, and it's just such a weird idea i don't even want to like explore how it works because i just like that weirdness of how how do you handle a fictional department like what wh wh how do you tell them what to do they're not real they're fiction and like fred's like a bridge between that because then i can use mm -hmm. fred to fred in that article is part of the pataphysics department you could talk to fred like he's a character who you can actually communicate with so i love fred because he, he he allows me to um do stuff with the pataphysics department without actually having to explain how the pataphysics department works. It seems like to me, it's almost like an ongoing interactive piece of literature, like almost like in a video game, mm -hmm. choose your own adventure mm -hmm. kind of way. Then I could see it almost kind of like that. Mm -hmm. um, where if like you have the ability to actually converse mm -hmm. with fictional characters. Yeah. And like essentially write them real time mm -hmm. by interacting with them. Right. Um, but I, I really liked how you kind of see the buildup mm -hmm. with this uh, SCP because it's numerous pages of it being rewritten, which I thought was a really cool mm -hmm. little uh, technique. Uh, where in the beginning, it's just showing like him ruining. I don't know about ruining, but more changing a lot of like classic right. uh, novels. The Lord of the Rings one really made me laugh. That one was really <laughs> funny. Um, but uh, this is the question I had. I So I've actually never read... Don Quixote. Mm -hmm. um, it's a play, right? Or is it originally I, a novel? It's a novel, probably. It's probably the. I don't. I, I mentioned this in the article, and some people might dispute it, but it's probably the most important novel written in Western literature. Like it, it's it's 
it's debatable depending on how you define importance but it's like it is a it is i think 17th century like it's it's a it's kind of a hard read nowadays because of the language mm -hmm. and yeah. you're reading it particularly because it's translated and depends on the translator and also but if you do read it it is a mind trip because the the guy who's reading writing it is doing so much weird shit like like the novel is is a fictional novel in the context of the story itself and at a mm. certain point the character actually gets kind of pissed about um like get kind of pissed about the novel being written about him and it's just a really weird metafictional and that's one of the reasons it's considered like so important is because it's obvious cervantes was really playing around with the idea of fiction in the story itself but the basic premise is like you know uh, you've seen don quixote in popular media right or heard of him yeah. I've always seen references, yeah. Right, like he's the guy who charges windmills. Mm -hmm. Like he's basically a knight who he's 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 a nobleman who goes mad from reading literature, um, uh, from reading romantic literature, which is kind of ironic because the actual takeaway from Don Quixote the novel is that you should not read junk literature, romantic literature. That's Cervantes' point. <laughs> but everybody, yeah. everyone, including myself, takes the opposite meaning from this. Like we all say, "Oh no, Don Quixote's great." Because in the in the book, in the actual book, he fucking dies, uh, like um, in despair, because he realizes he's wasted his life on his delusions of saving mm. the world, and like it's supposed to be like a cautionary tale. But everybody takes the opposite meaning from it and says, "No, Quixote is great. We love Quixote, like the character Don Quixote." But I I find that uh, it's kind of a common theme with a lot of pieces of literature or movies where. Mm -hmm. The, the author, the director's message, and what the audience actually takes away are two right. very different things. Yeah, and I think in, th in this case, I'm totally okay with it because I think Cervantes is kind of a dick. Because <laughs> like, mm. he, what he's saying is that you should not read, that, that romantic fiction pollutes the mind. It's kind of what he's trying to argue. Was he like, like a very, do you know, like, if he was not, a very religious person or like, I don't, what he, I don't know. He was coming from? And I might be being kind of unfair to him. Uh, it's not so much that all romantic fiction pollutes the mind he would probably say too much of it pollutes mm. the mind like you shouldn't read too much of this stuff because you'll go mad and think you'll run off and save the world as a knight with no actual knowledge of it and, and i can see his point too in a certain sense you need history you need fact you need reason like you need a but i, I just there's something very compelling to me about the figure of don quixote just saying no fuck it i don't care uh, of what reality has to say i'm going to save the world no matter what the cost and just see everything in this sort of romantic heroic way yeah it almost sounds like uh cervantes is like the parent talking to his teenage son saying no you can't change the world on your own right so uh, and the teenage son is like fuck it no i'm gonna go run off and save the world and there's something very compelling about that that I, to people that that speaks to them because don quixote is not a teenager he's an old man yeah. who's saying mm -hmm. this and yeah. there's just something really great about that image of an old man just going mad and saying i'm going to save the world um is it also i don't know if you can credit this but the way i always knew about it was oh it was like the first meta um story um, I don't know if that's actually true, though. I guess it's probably more the so... first meta story in Western fiction. Okay. Because I should say, mentioned like China's got its own huge, friggin' ancient uh, tradition of metafictional literature that far, far predates 
Don Quixote. But in the West, Don Quixote, if it's not the first one, it's one of the most important ones. Do you know any examples off the top of your head of the Chinese stuff? That sounds interesting. Um, uh, the the uh, Journey to the West is, is, oh, is yeah. huge. Oh, yeah. And that's very metafictional, I know, in a lot of different ways. Uh, I, I'm not too familiar for Chinese literature. I just know like that one. And there's I know a lot of them. Um, uh, I would expect, I, I don't know, I, I kind of don't want to get too deep into it because I'm worried I'm just going to be talking out my butt. I just don't mm-hmm. know enough about Chinese literature. I definitely know Journey to the West is a, is has strong metaphysical fictional elements and it predates Don Quixote by a good I think it predates Don Quixote uh yeah no I'm pretty sure that's I'm gonna get this wrong but I think it was 1300s or 1400s when that was written one of my friends is a huge yeah 16th century uh, so yeah 16th okay 1500s thank you for fact check (laughs) oh it's Uh, fine because I didn't know myself I I was pretty sure it predates yeah one one of my friends is a huge so he's a Chinese American, mm-hmm. and so he grew up with all the Journey to the West cartoons. Mm-hmm. Um, so he kind of, I never read the book, but mm-hmm. he kind of when we were we ended up visiting China a couple years ago. He as uh, my way to kind of get into uh, his view, I guess, of China and his experience mm-hmm. growing up uh, back and forth between America and Shanghai. He showed me a bunch of like the old old Journey to the West cartoons, which mm-hmm. were really kind of charming. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the cartoons, I don't actually see any of that, uh, like, metafiction kind of stuff. Do you know, are you familiar with, like, how it's kind of meta, the actual story? Uh, I'd have to, one sec, um, I'd have to read through it again. <laughs> it's okay, been, it's yeah. been, like, a don't decade worry, since worry. I've read it. I just remember, oh, man, um, no, I don't know off the top of my head. It's been way no too long for me. I, I'm too worried about messing it up. That is interesting, though. I never realized that, like, China or just Eastern uh, literature had an older uh, history behind that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, like, when I say metafictional, metafictional is kind of, I don't know if that's the right term to apply to what that book is doing, maybe. Mm-hmm. Because metafictional is kind of like there's a Western sort of understanding of metafiction that I don't know is the same in China. That might be a translation issue there too oh, okay yeah i see what you're saying um different cultural perspectives too on things mm. definitely affect um i mean my only real dance with like eastern stuff is i'm i love uh like mythologies and i remember as a kid um and even in high school just like on my pastor time i would read like Japanese folklore, mm-hmm. Norwegian folklore. I obviously started with Greek. That's kind of where I think most people in the West kind of start with, this mm-hmm. Greek and Egyptian. Right. Um, Everybody learns about then, the Greek uh, gods. Mm-hmm. And then, ironically, not the Roman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't blame them. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, tangents aside, um, the character that ends up not being Don Quixote, mm-hmm. who is that? Is that it's the character? That's uh, Don Quixote's loyal. Uh, in in Don Quixote, in the book, what happens is he he's he's trying to become a knight, and he realizes he needs a squire because all mm-hmm. knights have a squire. So he finds a peasant who's basically just a farmer. And he's like, "You want to be my my squire?" And the peasant's like, "What the fuck is this guy talking about?" And he says, "Well, listen, if you become my squire, you'll you'll gain riches." And he's like, "Okay, I'm in." And he becomes his loyal squire. And basically, Sancho is the voice of reason in these stories because he's just oh, a okay. farmer. He's a mm-hmm. farmer basically following this guy around and he's like, uh, uh, he, he's 
engaging in Don Quixote's delusion, but at the same time, he's trying to nudge him away from the more excessive parts of it. Like mm. he's trying to say, uh, maybe, maybe they're just windmills. Maybe we shouldn't charge them. Like, and and he, he basically acts as kind of like a grounded voice of reason during the narrative to Don Quixote's wild zaniness. And the idea is that in, in this article, anyway, he at the end of uh, he becomes. Don Quixote just long enough to uh, try and uh, re-inspire his old master. Hmm. Okay. That's a fun little plan whole thing. My, so yeah, the closest I ever came to reading mm-hmm. Don Quixote was, so I was in film school and I helped a peer produce a like scene. Basically mm-hmm. he took a scene from a play that was, mm-hmm. so the, I think the, the, probably uh, the man of La Mancha, which is the famous play. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it was that, and he basically had to just like make a film adaptation off out of the mm-hmm. scene of it. So that's my only like direct experience mm-hmm. with uh, that story. Um, but anyway, the yeah. other piece that I really want to talk about was um, I think this is my personal favorite, honestly, out of everything I've read so far. Full full transparency, I've not read a ton of uh, your stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I've probably read six or seven are the ones i remember because mm-hmm. let's be honest i probably read a bunch before and just forgot because again it's been a long time that i've been dabbling in and out mm-hmm. but um i really really love science bugs 3035 mm-hmm. um because i mean i am a big like bio nerd I, I always loved like animals and mm-hmm. learning about like mimicry and nature mm-hmm. so it's kind of cool to see like a hardcore version of that mm-hmm. where it's happening like behaviorally live mm-hmm in a matter of like days or weeks right um and we're literally they're physically changing in front of your eyes right um and i actually recently for the first time watched the movie they live are you familiar with that they live maybe so it's it's a john carpenter movie oh yeah yeah for people yeah who don't know. With the glasses yeah the glasses and yeah. he puts it on and it's like the advertisement says like obey right, or like right. uh uh marry and have children or things mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. um but what's kind of fu- it's very gimmicky, very cheesy. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I was I was a little disappointed, not gonna lie. I thought it was gonna be a bit more mm-hmm. intelligent about how they go about that kind of topic, because mm-hmm. um, I do think like there's core principles of it that actually have real like application to our current world. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, there's basically these like aliens that are mixed in that are controlling the humans, and they look like these ghouls from like Fallout. Right. Um, and that kind of made me think of this, where it's like basically uh, spoilers just in general about these things if we say a a, uh sp article and you want to read it pause it come back because as you know we'll probably spoil it like we have in past podcasts um but with this one basically they uh start out like normal sort of cockroaches but then they start noticing that he's mimicking the researcher that's um analyzing them Mm -hmm. And so, like, I love when, like, they're mimicking him drinking coffee and typing on the uh, right. the keyboards. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the part that really got me was when he, like, they take over and they're actually writing the actual, um, right. uh, I'm blanking, like, the, the actual article, though. And there's just his attachments. Yeah. Another case of the Mondays one, another case of the Mondays two. <laughs> I, I did um, that because whatever you copy files, like, depending on the uh, OS you're using, and the files have the same name. Like you just hit shift mm-hmm. insert, shift insert. It just puts parentheses one, two, three. 
Like, so yeah, it's just happens. them like tapping the same like yeah. button over and over again. They're just hitting yeah. pace, 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 pace again <laughs> and again. <laughs> but I, I so like it ends up going a more comedic route where you, I mean I guess the empty uh, where they basically they end up shutting the whole thing down, mm-hmm. um, and they have a uh, the wolf pack come mm-hmm. in, and uh, that not as funny. But overall, the article is very uh, f- funny. Um, mm-hmm. But couple questions on that the wolf pack is that just an mtf that existed before or did you just kind of decide i just to made just it up because it's, it's based yeah. completely off a joke three wolf three wolf moon t-shirt i don't know if you've ever heard of that no no actually, it's a meme or something where there's if you look it up three wolf uh, moon t-shirt basically it is the dopiest sort of um <laughs> Uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, oh, wait. It's three wolves howling at the moon on a t-shirt. Yes. And I've there's reviews of it. There's reviews of it on like eBay or whatever, where people are just going on and on about how amazing it is. Yeah. And that's a joke where they're just like completely obsessed with these three wolves are howling at the moon, their spirits soaring. And it's just like, it's just, it's just kitsch. It's just like the dumbest, uh, uh, meaningless tripe somebody just threw together. It's a fun fact. Yeah, and, huh. and that and just I, I remember liking that joke so much I was like, I'm just gonna make an MTF called Three Wolves. Three Wolf Moons. I'm I'm glad that that's such a like random uh funny uh reason. Mm-hmm. Uh but okay, so uh basically what happens is they start realizing that like the roaches are just mimicking anything they come into interaction with, so right. they end up becoming more violent because they're interacting with right. um a hostile force sent to kill them. Right, you send um, a bunch of MTFs after they kill them, and they will make the MTFs trying to kill them, which is bad. So, like, that's a bad approach. Um, but what I was wondering, I don't know if I misread this. They're saying at one point they saw a cockroach that looked like it was all like made of teeth and claws and like nothing else. Is that it mimicking like another SCP or monster like in the it, site? That that was my idea that there were things in the site that they were mimicking that were monstrous. I didn't have anything specific in mind. Just oh, okay. Just okay. the idea that you know having a bunch of bugs that mimic anything they see in a SCP site is probably going to result in some horrible things. They're mimicking some horrible things. No, I, I really like that one because um, it's just kind of like a. What is, this, what is this like cute little thing that we thought we were playing with? Mm-hmm. It's like the genie's out of the bottle with this. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows how far this mimicry can actually go? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, is it that their strength and their durability kind of reflects whatever they're mimicking, or in the end, they're still just a cockroach? It, whatever mechanism that they're using to mimic, mm-hmm. their strength and durability will go up as a result of the of the mechanism, but not actually mimicking the strength and durability of itself. In other words, mm. if they build the structure they need in order to mimic you, that structure is obviously more durable than what they used to be. But mm-hmm. the structure is not actually built to replicate your durability. It's just built to replicate a, a facsimile of your durability. Does that make sense? Like, like it's like they, the scale, like the durability is going to go up because of right. the scale, like it because getting of larger, things, things like, like scale that. and the material mm-hmm. they're using, which is like bug chitin or whatever. Yeah. And so like maybe bug chitin's more durable than you. Maybe it's not. It depends. Like they're, they're still cockroaches is the point. They're cockroaches that just their body, their bodies expand and retract to kind of mimic what they're looking at. But it's not like they're mimicking the chemical signature of what they're looking at. They're just mm-hmm. mimicking the okay. basic yeah. appearance and sounds of it. And I'm assuming 
what inspired this was like so in nature mimicry is very common oh, so for example a, like well where i live like you literally have these little flies that look like bees and they're actually flies hmm. they're just striped uh yeah right yeah you know. I, I was going to say that and also very specific thing uh inspired this was a movie called mimic which is a horror movie oh i haven't um, seen that actually it's i think i want to say it's from the 90s it's a really cheesy and bad movie <laughs> it's just your standard monster movie but there's mm-hmm. one scene in it I saw as when I was growing up and I it just floored me and I love it. It's because the premise of this is that there's these bugs in I think it's in New York City or something that mimic uh, that basically engage in mimicry in order to uh, disguise themselves from their prey. And they start mimicking humans. And there's a scene where you see one and for just a brief moment you can't tell that it's a bug. The way it's angled and everything, it looks like it's just like a, a guy, like a hobo or something, just mm. like shuffling around really awkwardly. But then as you get closer, you realize, oh, no, that face, it's not a face. It's just the back of its head. And the robes aren't robes, they're wings. And I just remember seeing that and finding it so off-putting. Like, like That's because cool, for yeah. a second, it fooled me. For a second, it fools you. You look at it and say, oh, that's a person. And then the face splits apart. And you're like, oh, that's not a person. And that sort of balance between it's almost recognizable and it's not the other uh, really good um uh inspiration is john carpenter's the thing Mm -hmm. where the thing mimics things but it isn't actually those things but i think that this is a little bit different than that because the thing is really good at mimicry to the point where you cannot tell the difference but in this article and in other articles that i like i like it when you can tell the difference but just barely like there's a sense of it's have you do you know p zombies no actually no uh p zombies are a concept called philosophical zombies and the premise behind a philosophical zombie it's a philosophy thing is that it's a a a zombie that simulates all the basic um that can replicate all the basic outputs of a human being in other words if Hmm. you if you pinch it it'll scream it'll it'll act like it's hurt if you talk to it 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 can respond back Hmm. in turn but there's nothing going on under the hood in other words, it doesn't experience pain, it just expresses pain. So the idea is, what's the difference between that and a human being? And the idea here is, that I think creates horror, is the idea of an imperfect P-zombie, which is where it's a P-zombie, but there's something there that reminds you that it's a P-zombie. Because you can't tell a P-zombie from another person. Like, you can't tell the difference between a P-zombie and a person. They're ident- functionally indistinguishable because their outputs are the same. They act exactly the same way. But if there was just one thing off about that P-Zombie that reminded you that it's not real, that it doesn't actually experience pain, that it's not thinking, that it's not, like, that creates a very, like, uh, uncanny valley effect. Yeah. Where you go, whoa, thinking. whoa, what's going on here? What? Yeah. Like, just the one moment where it reveals, oh, crap, it's not actually responding, like, thoughtfully. Like, if it just starts repeating a word again and again and again. Things like that. So, I'm sure... You know all about them. So uh, I actually don't know the free speech army, but I'm very familiar with that concept because of AI. And I was right. actually talking about this. Uncanny my, Valley. Uh, yeah, I was literally talking about this the other night where we were talking about, I personally definitely think there will become a point in human history where the idea of like having robot partners or robot like mm-hmm. spouses and basically how a robot will basically be completely in- indistinguishable emotionally or mentally than an actual human. It actually might be more ideal um, from a, like, person, the per- from, like, a, oh, this person is really programmed to appease me and become a very, like, 
super easy to get along with person that's easy to talk to is never like emotionally breaks out always knows how to calm you down um and it kind of makes you think is it actually having feelings does it actually feel sorrow or emotions or is it just kind of just a set of code that's just reading or, and analyzing cues and just responding right. and mm-hmm. to those things I, I i kind of don't know about the robot angle but i can imagine chatbots fulfilling that purpose eventually <laughs> like a, a chatbot that's emotionally available i did and that seems to be weird but i can imagine i don't wouldn't i wouldn't think that would be a good thing i i, I don't either yeah it, i agree kind of reminds but i can imagine it happening kind of reminds me of like um uh when uh monkeys in labs when they're raised in labs uh, mm-hmm. rather than actual contact with other fellow monkeys they'll just give them stuffed animals and like it, it kind of stunts their emotional growth as a result because they they like instead of a mother instead of like letting raising them with their mother they want them separate so they'll put a stuffed monkey in there to act as a surrogate mother and it has a way of, of stunting the monkey's uh, development because it's not getting any actual interaction with another living being it's just and, and like it, it would be indistinguishable from the human's perspective, mm-hmm. but not like there's going to be components that are missing from that. I put relationship in quotes, relationship that even though you can't see are still missing. Like it, it, you're not going to be able to create a, tr- a, a relationship that fulfills the um, the emotional, actual emotional needs of a human being. I don't think with that approach. I don't know if this is a a great example that's exactly the same, but I know one example I'm aware of is with puppies. If you get a dog and you get a really young puppy and you Mm -hmm. raise it without its mother, it ends up becoming very like emotionally dysfunctional and can be very easily become like a problem dog because it doesn't know kind of what is acceptable behavior, what isn't, what's destructive behavior, what's not. It kind of is just kind of will do whatever it wants and react any way it wants and never like kind of be put in its place, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, that a mother dog is really good at doing mm-hmm. in a like non-abusive way. Um, so that's where I'm more concerned of is where you get these people that uh, are never have to emotionally mature or grow themselves right. as a human. That, that, that's, I hadn't thought of that, but but the um, because like if you do this from approach with a automata, it's going to placate you. That's its point. Mm-hmm. That, that's what you're programming yeah. it for, to please you in some sense. It's never going to challenge you because challenging you wouldn't please you. Yeah. It's never going to like like uh, it put you in a space where you're uncomfortable and you should feel uncomfortable to try and like get you to uh, improve your emotional health. Is this going to be like candy all the time, like a candy dispenser? And there's a weird kind of uh, feedback loop that, that ends up creating where it kind of just spirals mm. and spirals, I feel like. Mm. Um, but anyway, I don't think I'll live long enough to, uh, to see that reality, uh, at least in robots. I definitely think by AI, I, I definitely... Th- um, Chatbots, I, I can see. Chatbots have gotten pretty scary already mm. um, with where they are right now. Mm. Um, but yeah, uh, that's a can of worms that mm. I probably won't dig into. Because that can easily become another few hours of all the things related to AI and like Neuralink and all that fun stuff. Mm. Um, but anyway, um, I also want to really talk about Summer Summerfield. So it's V thirty two forty one. So just a quick one for people who aren't familiar. It's basically this ship 
that suddenly disappears. And uh, basically people have suspicions that it was a Scranton reality anchor that went haywire and went critical. And that's what caused the ship to vanish. And basically you end up kind of following these series of, like briefings and interviews of the company that developed them saying, oh, they're super safe. They almost never go wrong. And that, in fact, them not using enough of them was the reason why it went haywire. And just kind of like this very stereotypical kind of what you expect of a company to cover up a uh, someone or someone who has a vested interest to cover up uh, a crisis. And then you kind of slowly unravel um, what really what really happens and what the real issues are um, as you kind of go through the article. Um, but you were saying you're heavily inspired by Chernobyl and something else. Um, so I was curious what those are. Uh, this one wasn't Chernobyl. I was wrong. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. Just because yeah. Chernobyl came out, I think, after I wrote this. There was another article I wrote that was inspired by Chernobyl. I have to go look it up. I think it might have been my uh, um, There Is No Site 5 article. This one was more inspired by uh, Deepwater Horizon the, uh, spill, uh, mm. which was a huge, huge oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. It basically, like um, thinking about ecological disasters and thinking about what would an ecological disaster look like from an anomalous perspective? Like, what's an anomalous oh, okay. ecological disaster? What does that look like when the foundation fucking has an oil spill? It's like, and all their crazy shit just spills out everywhere. And so that was the foundation for this article. That and also, I wanted to write something like um, DJ Cactus's uh, SCP-1730, which is uh, whatever happened to Site-13, mm, mm, yeah. but on the sea. But as I wrote the article, I realized I, I didn't really want to, like, initially i was going to go on the boat you're going to see what's going on on this boat like all the mm -hmm. freaky wild shit happening but then the, the more i wrote the article the more i realized i actually don't care what's happening on the boat i'm more interested <laughs> i'm more interested in the response to what's going on in the mm. boat and like uh, how the foundation deals with it i usually don't write articles that are very lore extensive i like articles that are um very standalone that you don't mm. need that you can just read if you have no idea what any of this nonsense is yeah. But, but this was a time when I was like, I, I kind of want to try and see, write an actual lore heavy article that like, creates or fits into a canon. And so I got wrapped up in the idea of the foundation old versus new, like the new foundation, which is kind of more friendly, more gentle, more kind hearted. And the old foundation, which is like, no, fuck it. We're, we're burning like we don't give a shit. <laughs> we're, we are evil sons of bitches and we are proud about it. And that that sort of tension between them and thrown into the mix the sort of capitalism of this corporation that just that that there's a tension there that i find amusing because the new foundation is better obviously like mm. they're they're kinder they're more thoughtful but the corporation can fuck them over because of that because they're concerned now about things like laws and rules and rule of law and the old foundation is awful but the one thing it has is it would never put up with this nonsense <laughs> And like, that's the end when, when the O5 is like, oh, no, 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 you're not getting away with this. It's like, yeah, he, uh, I'm very proud of the new foundation, but, but like, I'm from the old school. You're dying in a fucking hole, buddy. Like you are, I, you are going to hell for this. And I am happy to facilitate that. That all really made me think of like CAA during the Cold War and mm -hmm. like the U.S. government now where mm -hmm. basically... There's a very, very, very dark past. I mean, arguably still dark present. Uh, with yeah, I would argue you know, that that we have not um, we have not got gotten, out of it really. Yeah. But. <laughs> we, we're still kind of in that there. Yeah, 
Uh, but at least, like, a lot of the hidden stuff now we're not aware of, so I think mm-hmm. that's also why is, like, you get mm-hmm. the Cold War with, um, what is it, the M-something? M- uh, MK, MK-Ultra. MK-Ultra, yes. Yeah. So that's that's what the kind of stuff I was thinking about, where you have these, right. like, or the uh, the syphilis. Um, this Right, the Tuskegee. Uh, the Tuskegee, Tuskegee um, yeah, Tuskegee syphilis. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, all these things that were kind of, like, ethics out the window which right. just get information and do it the hard uh, do right. it the, uh, to me, the quick the, and dirty way to me like to me that's the analogy for this foundation back mm-hmm. like there there's a tension there because i don't know it depends on what direction you want to take things i don't like the foundation is evil i find that boring yeah but i also feel like it's boring also to make the foundation out to be the good guys. I think it's most interesting to make it extremely complicated. And and like, there are things about them that are absolutely horrible, but there's also things about them that are arguably good. And like, I wanted to try and create that in this article where, where you come out of it thinking, I, I, I don't like, I know that these people, some of these people are fucking awful, but it's really hard not to see 05's pers- 055's perspective and not cheer her on as she does this. Even though she is, yeah, and she is, in her own words, a fucking horrible person. Yeah, I think it's a better, There's, it's just more interesting because also I feel like in real life, mm-hmm. um, pretty much any powerful entity or organization is never completely good or completely evil. They, mm-hmm. Especially if they've been around for a while. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's very hard to... Uh, always do the right thing when it's so easy and so beneficial mm-hmm. to just screw the ethics mm-hmm. um and also i think kind of i guess in my own personal lore of the foundation like fear is a great motivator to do horrible things mm-hmm. and so if you really feel like you have no choice and right. this thing will end the world you're willing to do anything to prevent that. that that's that's my one of my ideas for the foundation that i always like to think about and write from and part of what this article is is that the early foundation was driven by fear because they didn't know what the hell was going on and they thought they had to go to extremes to save the world, but they didn't. And yeah. they slowly are starting to realize, okay, we might have gone a little too far here. But you still have these like old school monsters in the foundation, like the, like the 055s, who, who remember those days and are trying to adapt, but simultaneously are like, yeah, but every so often you do need to be afraid. Yeah. Like every so often the fear is justified. Not not as nearly as much as we thought, but every so often you need a monster. I uh, I mean I just feel like the Cold War shenanigans and mm-hmm. the spy wars just really mirror perfectly at least that kind of style of the SCP Foundation, which is the lore I have for it. Mm-hmm. Um just because you have like the fight against communism and this idea that this monster of communism will destroy the world as we know and we must do anything uh no matter what to defeat communism right which is insane Um, but it's not like but it's not like russia was the good guys but still it's like the the narrative is deranged but there is truth to the idea that you know they're not our friends and just trying to untangle that complicated ball is really hard um yeah. So anyway, that and then also the other reason why I think of it is because you get like the Men in Black, you get all the Roscoe right. uh, mm-hmm. alien stuff during the fifties. Mm-hmm. Um, secret and projects, also, secret projects, stuff. the Manhattan Project, obviously during World the Cold War, War. The Cold War canon in the site, I think it's called a Colder War, Coldest War. Mm. I forget which. It, it's one of my favorite canons. The article, some of the articles in there are fantastic. I love pretty much all of them. Mm. And now, now actually, I wish I. Some of my favorite article. Another one of my favorite articles is uh, Kalanen's um, 
the dead hand i think it's called which is basically a cold war weapon left over that's basically the ghost of a, like an it's basically a, a ghost that's in charge of i think a nuclear weapon depot that or no it's not it's not a nuclear weapon depot it's it, it's a ghost is oversimplifying but basically the soviets created this monster who can like astrally project himself into places and he is terrifying and they have no way to shut him off and oh cool and it's 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 a pretty good article i think that that just gives you a sense uh, the first article i wrote a um uh, the counting station, the Russian one. Mm, yeah. That's Cold War. It's like it's an old yeah. Cold War mm-hmm. relic left over that they created, and they have no way to shut off. All they can do is just keep saying "all is well" and reset it. Do you actually know the Russian word for that? Because uh, I can't read Cyrillic. No, I have no idea what it is. Oh, okay. I, so I basically just... did a Google Translate, and then I, checked, <laughs> okay, yeah. I checked with someone who knows Russian and said, "Is this right?" And they were like, "Yeah." I was like, "Okay," and that's, that was basically the entire process. That was actually another question I wanted to ask with the counting station is, um, and I think we kind of answered already, but what was your reasoning for setting it in Russia? The and Cold having, War, like, yeah. Russian, because I wanted yeah. to, I wanted to evoke uh, nuclear depots. And basically, I, I felt kind of bad because I always feel a little weird about making Russians out to be the bad guys because American literature does that so often, particularly yeah. after the Cold War. But setting it in America, I, don't, I, I think the Russian element gave it a sense of alienness to an american reader which was necessary to kind of create that horror because if it was an american depot like Mm -hmm. it doesn't really change anything but the reader there's a sense of familiarity with it now that might make the reader less creeped out by it it's kind of cheap but like setting it in a different making it the russians who did it makes it i mean that's kind of a cheat on my end uh using that to kind of create that sense of alienness but I, hmm. I do think that, yeah. that that's one of the reasons it works. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't realize that was another reason why you yeah, chose... Yeah, because like, uh, it could have easily have been an American counting station. There's absolutely no reason. Yeah. Same sentiment. Well, I shouldn't say that. Well, yeah, no, because I was about to say um, America never really developed a... Um, <laughs> have you ever seen um, Dr. Strangelove? Yes, I love that film. Um I think the the idea of the Russians to have like a, a death weapon that would destroy the entire world if the Americans attacked. I don't think that would ever be an American idea, not because I think the Americans are the good guys, but because particularly in the Cold War, the Americans needed to perceive themselves as the good guys and mm-hmm. a weapon that would destroy the entire world if it went off. I think that, that would contrast too much with their image as being like the heroic cowboy, because <laughs> like like the Star Wars project is not. <laughs> the Star Wars program, it, we're gonna shoot laser beams at your missiles before they ever reach us. <laughs> yeah. Like that—that's a very American idea. Like, yes. it's very stupid and very optimistic. I would call it. Well, the Russians. Um, well, the Russians are like, we're not optimists about this, man. You pull out a knife, we're pulling out a gun. Like, we don't give a shit. We're fighting for our lives. So, yeah, like, there's a there's like a superhero naivete to yeah uh, yeah very super heroic and the Russians never had that during the Cold War <laughs> they, they were like we and and like you look at the Cuban Missile Crisis and that's a perfect example of this mm-hmm. where like we move nuclear missiles in your backyard and the Russians go oh okay we'll move nuclear missiles in your backyard and we immediately freak the fuck out like what are you doing yeah. and the Russians mm-hmm. are like we're, what are you talking about we're, we're doing what you did <laughs> isn't that what this yeah. is you pull a knife we pull a gun that's how this works. And like, there's that uh, disconnect between the American understanding of the war and the Russian understanding of the war, that that makes me think that the Americans would have never built 
a device that could blow up the entire world. Not back then anyway. Right. Nowadays, I don't know. But back then, I, I think it would have contrasted too much with our self-image. Uh, yeah, it seems we had a much more like aggressive, offensive. Uh, it, it, it's like a self too, too too self-destructive and too villainous in a way. It feels villainous, even no matter how you look at it. It feels it, it has it has that sort of "Are we the baddies?" sort of moment to it, where you're building your death machine that will destroy the world if somebody fucks with you. Yeah, I also feel like so I'm I'm American, obviously, mm-hmm. for people who don't know. Uh, but I feel like growing up, I've always kind of heard this idea of like hope and like we're always striving towards something, we're always right. working towards something, and that having a death weapon destroying everything just completely. Mm-hmm. And, and like I don't even think I don't even think it's it's irra- It is irrational on a macro level, but on yeah. a micro level, I can see the rationality behind it as just saying, "Listen, this is <laughs> this is our policy, so you don't bomb us." Yeah. But like I just, it seems too incompatible with American ideology and the idea of. of america as uh the hope of the future or whatever at least during the cold war i'm thinking like yeah. reagan reagan era it definitely mm-hmm. would not i don't think it would have flown like reagan era they would they would go star wars or something yeah they would rather so, uh, pursue that sort of project and then i actually learned this like the other day i might be getting i might be butchering this a little bit, but it turns out there was a Hidden, so during the Cuban Missile Crisis and a little before that, they built this entire like nuclear shelter inside of a mountain. Mm. I think. Uh, Americans think or Russians? The Americans, the Americans. Oh, okay. And uh, basically, it turns out that a bunch of like families, CIA families, were just like during the Cuban Missile Crisis, were Hiding literally out like. There. Yeah, they were literally like removed in the middle of the day from their classes and just told mm. to go there mm. and to stay in there. Um, and that I heard it was actually an intelligence mishap of the reason why there wasn't a nuclear war. Like basically, the Americans didn't realize that the missiles were already there in Cuba, mm-hmm. and uh, bad information from I think uh, a Soviet a spy in Soviet space. I forgot. I think it was miscommunication on both parts, where there was bad info on intel on the Russian side and bad intel on the U.S. side. That mm-hmm. that was like the only real reason why the crisis ended There's, up not happening. There are way too um, many stories of that in the Cold War, <laughs> where it's like oh yeah, reason- in general. Like there's that famous submarine uh, one. I'm sure you've heard of the uh, captain uh, guy where it's didn't... basically there. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. The guy who did it was a misreading just- of like a radar he just said you know what um i'm just gonna pretend like it's just misread reader he had every reason to hit the button he's like nah 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 it's okay mm-hmm. yeah it's like there's way too many stories like that in in our history as far as uh, the cold war goes i have no idea uh, how we yeah. got out and then alive. i think <sighs> yeah i mean i don't think we're out of it fully <laughs> no uh, no yeah. it's just a, it's almost like a lull um because i think Side note, I think uh, a bunch of, I think uh, armaments between the Chinese and the U.S. are amping up again. Mm-hmm. Um, I could be wrong, though. Um, so, I mean, I, I feel like, speaking of Cold Wars, it's kind of interesting that, like, I think we're slowly beginning to enter into the next Cold War. So I that's, I think, another reason why I'm kind of drawn to the SB universe is because um, it's just a great uh, kind of allegory to kind of play with a lot of the conflicts you find in that kind of space people meddling um, uh, national powers meddling with powers they barely understand <laughs> like like mm-hmm. like yeah. the nuclear bomb it's like meddling and shit you do not like what's gonna happen if you drop 30 of these you don't really fucking know dude just just cool back for a second it's okay 
And like I, that has an analog in the SCP universe where the Foundation is meddling in powers they do not comprehend. Almost definitionally. And then it's also interesting when you get to see powers that are just so far ahead mm -hmm. of us or so advanced of us. Right. Um, that we're just like a speck of sand. Because I feel like... Mm -hmm. I also like these stories. And that's why I like Lovecrafting stuff a lot. Where you have these stories that really show... That really humble humans and like kind of show that like there are bigger fish out there right um, the stories that don't small fish hum big don't fish put, small pond uh stories that don't put humanity at the center of the universe because yeah. most most stories do i think uh, put humans at the center of the universe usually where they center somehow I, yeah i always had a fondness for fiction that, that moves away from that uh what's his name shout um, out to the halo series <laughs> that does the opposite <laughs> um no, exactly. like Halo, for example, where like the oh, human, yeah, yeah. like yeah. in Halo, like humans are like the the key, you know. It's right. Like a, right. We're, we're yeah. the center of the universe, like almost, almost literally, not quite, but close to it. Yeah. Uh, um, I remember uh, Green Lantern, the first movie trailer or the first movie with uh, what's his name, Reynolds. Yeah, Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. Uh, I remember reading the synopsis for it, and and he's, the synopsis had something in there like um. Uh, Hal Jordan will bring something to the Green Lantern Corps that they never had before. His humanity. I'm like, what the fuck? That doesn't <laughs> do the other yeah. aliens not have their own version of that? It's like, I'm a Trilixian. Mm -hmm. It's my Trilixianity. It's like, what, what, what the fuck does that even mean, dude? It's, it just, I think one of my favorite examples of displacing that is, um, uh, what's the guy's uh, Hitchhike Your Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams always loved i remember mm -hmm. when i was a little kid i started reading the first book and then like the first page the earth is described as or the back of the book the earth is described as exploding and i'm like what a great way to start it's like right from the beginning now earth is gone <laughs> they're they're out of the picture now we blew it up moving on it's like <laughs> they're all gone yeah i actually just got a uh, um what's it called a special edition where it has all the books in one book so I'm, like, I, I'm I have all my to diving into that one cause... I have one of them here I, yeah I have a special edition on my or some that has I have a, a set with all the books in one book on my bookshelf here somewhere yeah it's a set yeah that's what I meant yeah mm -hmm. I've only seen the movie so that's why and everyone says the books are do way more justice so yeah I, I kind of didn't like the movie because the movie felt like it actually moved towards humanity being the center of the universe which is and completely the opposite of his theme but uh, there were certain parts of the movie I liked, but a lot of parts I was like, uh, doesn't doesn't seem to have the same charm to me as the books ever did. Yeah, like I haven't seen it in years, but I feel like the main takeaways are what is the meaning of life, and like asking the right questions. Yeah, I, like I love that bit. Both of the, the books. Big takeaways took from it. I think in the movie they did that part justice at least. The the um, the um, what is like what is the answer to the question forty two. What the mm -hmm. fuck does that mean? <laughs> yeah. He says, well, do you know what the question is? Uh, he says, no, but can you figure it out? He says, oh, tricky. It's like, what? Never gets in the movie. I'm, is it okay if I spoil it? It's not even a spoiler. But in the book, he they figure out the question. If it's a small spoiler, yeah. It's a small spoiler. Uh -huh. The answer to the question is how many roads... Uh, the, the question that they're looking for, the computer comes up, is how many roads must a man travel down his life? 42. It's like, what the fuck does that even mean? Mm. It's like, there's your answer. It's just, it's like, it's meaningless. So that's where the number comes into play. Yep. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah, I definitely will. I'm, I'm reading the Hyperion Cantos right now, so that's, mm. I just almost done with the first book. 
but that's kind of a fun one because from what I'm aware of right now, they're like it's 700 years in the future and humanity has expanded throughout the galaxy and there are like no aliens that I'm aware of. It's almost like a kind of playing with the, the theory that humans are the only sentient life uh, in the in the known galaxy um, or advanced mm-hmm. sentient life. Uh, which can also be kind of interesting in, in its own uh, right, because basically certain humans have been on planets for so long that they start kind of coverging, uh, mm. not co, they start evolving to that planet's um, adaptations and mm. environments and gravity and environment. Um, so we end up becoming the aliens in that mm. in a weird kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, so fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, little do diddy. I'm not gonna dive into that because I haven't even finished the series, and it's not mm-hmm. related to any of the articles. So, um, oh, it's all but, right. Uh, well, actually, so okay, this is one thing that I thought was kind of interesting. So, in the Hyperion Cantos, there's this thing called the Shrike. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not aware of what it is yet because again, I'm only in the first book. But basically, it's this like time bending entity that. Um, lives on this planet called Hyperion and it mm-hmm. basically hunts for victims and mm-hmm. will capture these victims and then disappear into these like time tombs and basically the time tombs are these empty like granite built uh, tombs like pyramids and sphinx and mm-hmm. uh, think almost like an ancient like Egyptian tomb or something but people who go there end up almost always disappearing and there's a lot of weird time anomalies that happen with this. And then eventually, okay, this is a small spoiler. So skip this, skip like a minute hand if you don't want to hear this people. But uh, the time tombs are actually from the future and they're actually going through time backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at. That's like a big reveal. And then I will have to find out why that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, that, and then so basically that, because of that, people have a theory that the Shrike is actually a man-made entity. It's not an alien. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it was actually an entity created in the future that's again traveling back in time mm-hmm. with backwards in time with the time tombs mm-hmm. um, so is the Russian girl radio just a segue is the Russian girl the communication station mm-hmm. is that a man-made thing um, that signal and all like its effects or is I, that just I, something kind of being harnessed I it's it, I've never it's definitely something being harnessed like okay. it's, it's like the, the, it's a man-made thing in as much as they harnessed something that is not man-made and was terrible and horrible and monstrous and twisted it into a weapon for their own purposes. It is also kind of reminded me a bit of the uh, Manhattan Project. I mean, not the Manhattan, the Montauk Project. The I think project? just because of like the, the Montauk Project. Am I remembering that correctly? It's the SCP that involves oh, yeah. uh, where they have to sacrifice a little girl. Right, or, right. A, a I child or virgin. Mm-hmm. I always had issues uh, with that one. Just because of the... F- <laughs> yeah, special personnel I, requirements, I think it's called. Uh, it's 231, yeah. I believe. That was I, one of the first SPs I actually ever read. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got I'm no, from New York, Long Island, so Montauk is like in my backyard. Mm-hmm. But uh, And then also kind of remind me a lot of like... So do you know about Plum Island? I don't know if you're familiar with like Plum Long Island. Island or anything like that. Oh, Long Island. Yeah, I know a little yeah. bit about it. Never been there, but I know like... Uh, I know it by reputation, at least. So, <laughs> like what? I'm curious. I'm curious. Like, um, it's uh, old, uh, broken down, um, what do you call them? Um, merry-go-round stuff. And Am I thinking, is that Long Island? Like, basically boardwalks. So, 
old bulldogs, cotton candy. Yeah, we, we have Coney Island. Coney Island. That's what I'm thinking of. There's, yeah, we have Coney Island. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's in Bur- uh, Brooklyn. But anyway, so Plum Island is a small island off of Long Island that was, for the longest time, I think until recently, a secret government uh, base that you were not allowed to go near. You could not sail near it. Mm-hmm. So it was always this weird, like, mystery island and so of course there's numerous conspiracy theories that were spun by locals and residents Mm -hmm. and uh when i read the montauk project i'm like wow that sounds like like some of the crazy conspiracy theories that like would come out of like the plum island conspiracy Mm -hmm. theories and montauk is literally just south of plum island so Mm -hmm. i thought that was kind of a really interesting um thing like i'm sure if you know about the the montauk lighthouse or things like that no i never Um, heard although yeah, it's like the Hamptons. It's it's by the Hamptons. I'm sure. If you know anything about Long Island, that's what most people know is the Hamptons, because that's where all the rich people in New York City go uh, to vacation. But anyway, I lost track of how I got here. Oh, the children. So the children screaming and all that kind of stuff is what kind of made me think of it, where it's almost like it's being run off of like right. the suffering of like young innocent people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was going for. I love pretty much like. I, I always think there's always a part of my brain that always thinks it's a cheat to use uh, children suffering as, as a mm-hmm. uh, as a horror mechanic. Because like it just it felt like that would be the most that would be be the most um, <laughs> twisted thing to to realize that that's what the sound was it was just children mm-hmm. screaming. Do you have any like big like horror? Um, why am I blanking on the word? Uh, sorry do you have any big um pieces of horror that kind of influence your writing um a lot of let me think uh kind of i i pretty much i either you probably hear this a lot maybe you don't i don't know because it's just so cliche but stephen king i was was huge for me as a kid Mm -hmm. uh not his not his novels i think his novels are actually he, he, he give him too long and he just friggin loses himself in the reads like he just but his short stories mm. his short horror stories i still hold are some of the best short store horrors uh, his short form horror stories like just his brief tales mm. are i hold some of the yeah. best horror stories you can read they are just amazingly good and like uh, the word processor of the gods uh monkey shines which is where we're the reason we are all afraid of those monkeys with the symbols is because of that fucking story. Um, you know, the little toy monkey <laughs> with the symbols that bangs him. That's Monkey Shine. Yeah, he yeah. wrote that. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, okay. That's yeah. interesting. I didn't know it. Uh, and he put it on the cover of one of his books, and now everybody knows about it. Um, let me, there's a bunch of them. Um, and the, the, like, a lot of his short stories are have a huge influence on me because he takes really, really simple concepts that don't look like or sound like they should be terrifying, and he manages to terrify you with them. In the story of Monkey Shines, Hmm. as a great example, is here's, I'm going to tell you the entire story, and I'm not even cheating because this is how he introduces it. The entire story is about this creepy monkey with symbols, and periodically the monkey claps the symbols, and when it does, somebody dies nearby of just normal causes. They just have a heart attack or something. That's the entire story. Hmm. That's it. You now know the beginning and the end. I like that's there's the monkey never comes alive. There's no uh, like <laughs> it claps its symbols and somebody dies of some for some reason. That's the entire story. And it's fucking terrifying, particularly the way he frames the ending of it, where like he, the guy's trying to destroy the monkey before it claps again. And it's, 
it's just it's great there's another story he wrote called huh. i believe in his image i think reap no the reaper's image and again this is the entire premise of the story is it's an antique mirror that every so often you will see a slight figure in the background when you're looking at the reflection for just a moment if you do see it a few minutes later you disappear that's the entire story and nothing else happens huh. and it's fucking terrifying the, just taking these very these sound like sp articles yeah it's great that, that's one of the things that particularly in his reaper's image which is just it, it would make a great article it's just very simple straightforward it doesn't even seem like it should be scary but the framing is what makes it scary the tension of of the guy being like oh the mm. mirror's damaged and he scratches at it just like he thinks it's duct tape and then there's nothing there and he goes oh and he realizes he just saw the figure and stuff like that mm -hmm. he does a lot of great stuff I, uh, i've only seen adaptations of king stuff i don't think i, I actually have read all a couple of, in all like, of his my sci-fi horror stuff may, there might be I'm, there's probably remember. an ex, there's probably an exception on that I kept not thinking of, but all of his adaptations suck. The Shawshank Redemption was okay, but but uh, like all the like uh, all of these, The Stand was fucking horrible. I never, I haven't seen the new one. I do I'm like The Shining. Oh yeah, but, uh, never mind. I've heard You're right. The, the shot. He hates it though. But Which I heard it. Yeah, he, he hates, hates it, and he made a TV adaptation that was horrendous. Yes, <laughs> so. I saw the TV adaptation. I'm like, the movie is so much better than this. This is so bad. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, you're right. The Shining is a great adaptation, but he hates it. Uh, the other author who had a huge influence on me, who isn't horror at all, but um, uh, George Luis Borges. Uh, he's an um, Argentinian writer who did a lot of magical realism. Mm -hmm. He wrote stuff like The Library of Babel, which is a great short story. Oh. Um, that's him. Um, he did uh, The Aleph, which is a great short story. Uh, he, he just has great um, in the gar the garden of the garden of forking paths. It's the garden of many forking paths, or just the garden of forking paths, which is a great short story. Many forking paths, I think it is. Let me see. No, it's just the garden of forking paths. He did, hmm. which is it, it, it's all of his stories are great because they are just very subtle magic injected into real world things and it just twists everything just slightly and just keeps twisting throughout the whole story they're not usually horror stories at all they're more curiosities like um the library of babel is kind of borderline of terror maybe because you're trapped in this place but simultaneously it's more an exploration of of this world or this place where there's just a little twist that that um of magic that reveals something about the world as we know it, like the Library of Babel shows that, you know, having every single book that could ever possibly be written doesn't really help you because <laughs> like, you have no way to tell of which books are useful or not. Like every single possible interpretation. Do you know the Library of Babel? This is super familiar, uh, um, but it's not it, ringing a bell. It's a library uh, basically that is um, that these people are trapped in and the books on the shelves the library has a very specific geometry to it, but it's not important for the purpose of explaining it. But it's basically an infinite library, and the books on the shelves, each one has, I think, uh, maybe 200 pages. They all use the same set of characters, 27 characters, 200 pages, same format, and the uh, pages of the library just contain random uh, configurations of those characters. 
So in theory, hmm. this library contains every single work that can ever was, ever is, and ever will be written, including books that explain the purpose of the library and tell you how to get out. But the problem is those books can be right besides hmm. a book that explains how to get out and is completely wrong. Or besides a book that's nothing but gibberish for 50 pages. Or the complete works yeah. of Shakespeare with one typo right next to the works of complete works of Shakespeare with two typos. So like it's it has everything that you could ever imagine and it's completely useless. Because there's basically no the uh, the monkey with a typewriter. Right. It's it, it's the it's the idea of the monkey yeah. with the infinite typewriter, except it's finished. It's done. You finished typing everything. <laughs> And, and the, the point of it is like there's no like all the people are trying to find their own meaning in this place through the various books and all form different enclaves of what these books mean or how to find meaning. And it's all fucking nonsense <laughs> because it's like it doesn't matter is like you have every single book that could ever be written. And that makes it completely useless to you. Every single book that could be written with 27 I like characters, I should say, because obviously it's not going to contain text that can't be written without 20, these 27 characters. But I feel like, like you'd really like Tachiang. Do you know Tachiang? Uh, he did. Uh, I'm at least vaguely familiar with it. It's the, that uh, the it, like it's a, a thing where you assemble symbols together, right? No, no, no. The author Tachiang. Oh, oh. But Tachiang, he wrote. So do you know the film Arrival? Uh, vague. I've never seen it, but I know the plot and I know how it ends. That's like his most well-known short story that was adapted into a film. But he does, he has another book called like, a, I think the Tower of Babylon. Mm. And it's very kind of similar vein of this like kind of very curious, kind of interesting mm. uh, what if situation. And that's all, I have a whole book of like just his short stories. I feel like you'd probably kind of enjoy his kind of writing then if you like mm. those kind of stories. Because in this other? one, the Tower of Babylon, mm. uh, it's basically, it takes place in like the biblical times. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically they actually succeed in building a tower from Babylon to heaven mm-hmm. um, or the vault. This They, they basically, the, this world actually takes place where like biblical physics actually exists. So that <laughs> was pretty, also kind of cool. Yeah, that's a pretty good approach. Yeah, I can see that working. So literally like there's a tower that extends past the heavens, the stars, mm-hmm. the sun and everything and, and hits the vault. Uh, and it's basically this white rock or granite ceiling essentially around the entire world Mm. and they basically request a bunch of miners from all the the neighboring regions to along with like egyptian granite cutters to uh transcend walk all the way up to the tower to the vault of heaven and try to carve their way past it and get into heaven um so you basically follow the entire short story through the perspective of one of the miners um Highly recommend that one. It's a very cool, like, unique story that I've never really read something similar to it. And it's really short. I think it's, like, 60 to 100 pages. Um, but, yeah, that also goes to the audience. He's uh, got some cool stuff. Um, and if people are a huge fan of Arrival, I have yet to actually... That's actually the next short story in the book. But uh, I've heard for people who are fans of the film, reading the short story is also very uh, interesting. Um, but... Do you have any like works you want to shout out for people like of your own that you want people to read, anything like that? No, I mean, I'm, oh, uh, I guess um, the Peril Watch stuff, which I love writing. Um, mm. I don't know yeah. if you've ever read any of the Peril Watch stuff on the wiki. It's the other thing I write. It, it probably I haven't, but I do know about them. Uh, do you want to picture real quick? 
Substation 9 is probably the big one. It's basically just classic creepypasta. It's like instead of writing in the SCP framework, which is the specific article describing the specific anomaly, you write an old school internet forum post creepypasta. Pretend, um, like the, the point of it is to make it feel as real as possible, like something you just find on the internet, someone describing. And there's no real format to it. It's just you trying to creep out the reader, basically, as much as possible. Like uh, hmm. classic creepypasta, like um, what what are some of the classics? Uh, the Russian sleep experiment, but I never liked Slender that. Slender Man. Slender Man. Oh, yeah. yeah, I never liked that one either because it's just pictures. But yeah, basically that. Sort of <laughs> yeah. uh, Goat Man. I think uh, yeah, Goat, Goat Man was a fun one. Goat Man. I remember Goat Man. Yeah, stuff like that. Basically, I wrote a bunch of them, and other people have been writing them, and I just haven't gone through and read them. But I think all the Parawatch stuff tends to be it, it's my favorite um, because it, it, it's much more freeing. Like it lets you be much more subtle. You don't have to uh, use the context of an SCP article. You can just try to be spooky. Uh, I wrote one called Substation Nine that that um, is probably the most recent one I re- wrote that I'm very happy with. Which is uh, mm. basically just an exploration of underground places. It includes a lot of videos because I work in industrial environments. I have to explore some really creepy basements quite often. Oh, cool. So you literally, like, filmed yep, parts of your yep. work site, essentially? Yeah, and uh, not very uh, adeptly, awesome. but I didn't have to film it adeptly because the point of it is to be creepy, and it's pretty creepy when, like, the camera's just swinging around. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is it's uh, some dude just filming. Right. Uh, so I think that works perfectly. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I ask? I, I, I know I'm not going to try to dox you, and we can cut this out, but... Uh, what kind of like work do you do that's like industrial oh, related? Um, all sorts. It's actually kind of hard to narrow it down. I used to work in a refinery. Uh, I've worked in paper mills. I've worked in electrical substations. I've worked uh, like basically um, usually as an operator of some sort. So write, uh, writing permits for people, other people to do work, uh, but also um, hmm. uh, operating machinery. So like uh, shutting down, um, uh, shutting down breakers. Uh, making sure valves are closed and pumps are off or on or adjusting those pumps. I do a lot of pump maintenance sometimes. It's a very, very <laughs> diverse job. It's kind of hard to pin it down to one thing. It's basically uh, a lot of stuff. In, right now I'm doing a lot of pump work, so I'm rebuilding and fixing pumps a lot of times in factories. Like I just come in, make sure the pumps are running. If they're not, hmm. take them apart, figure out what's wrong with them, put them back together run line from a pump to a process so I can pump the chemicals in, uh, figure, do drawdowns, figure out how much of the chemicals going in that we need, stuff like that. Uh, yeah, my, uh, a lot of uh, 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 testing. I do a lot of lab testing too sometimes where they need to uh, you know, figure out what's the ORP. Wow, that, I'm assuming that's like perfect for inspiring articles and things like that. A lot of stuff, yeah, yeah. You, learns the uh, teaches you a lot of the terminology like um a lot of the stuff in um what's the article um the laughing men uh was it which takes place in a refinery uh i actually wrote it because i wanted to write a refinery piece uh, the laughing men 2419 and bethlehem steel which is 3352 which are both uh both take place in refineries and i just basically just said i i know how refineries work like, yeah. i've worked yeah. in them most of my life so i just wrote about the refineries and added like little spooky elements (laughs) 
Is uh, is that something still actually based off of like? Yeah. Yep. Uh, a couple of years, a uh, couple of decades ago, I believe. Uh, not it wasn't as it's nowhere near as dramatic, but it's that the the steel girder that's pictured in it with that inscription is real, like and that actually caught a, a fucking elbow dropped on a hydrogen <laughs> line, and it actually caught it. it the way it worked. It was it, it wasn't. I don't know if you read the article. In the article, the steel beam basically doesn't melt despite mm -hmm. the fact that it has every reason to melt it doesn't that's basically mm -hmm. the anomaly which is like almost yeah. so basic it's like bar not barely an anomaly but in reality what it was was the steel beam was in a spot where the pipe that had run on top of the steel beam that it was supporting had been taken away so the steel beam's just sitting there doing nothing and this hydrogen elbow above it dropped and it was about to hit the ground and if it hit the ground we'd all be fucked but instead, it landed right on top of the steel beam. So it's just like, it's like, oh God, oh God, oh God, bang. And it just stops. And the steel beam just held it up. And we were like, oh, okay. Huh. And so, because it was, the elbow was sinking off, basically, from heat. But the steel beam was in the right spot to catch it and supported it. And after that, they were just like, you know what? We're going to, uh, when we rebuild this, we're going to leave the steel beam there. It really wanted the job of supporting this pipe. It can have it. And so they just included the steel beam in the construction when they rebuild it, because they needed to they needed a support yeah. strut there anyway. Apparently, since the pipe was about to drop, so they just rebuilt the pipe and put this let the steel beam stay. I never knew. Uh, well, I guess it's not too far away from the back right now. That like mm -hmm. you're actually writing about and loosely based on true stories. Right. I wasn't there when that happened. By the way, I should I, I should mention. Like that's not that's not something that happened to me. That's something I was told about because I asked about that steel beam when I went out there, and I was like, "Why does it say God bless I beam Bethlehem steel on it?" And I was told the story, and I was like, "Oh, okay, that makes sense." I uh, so I'm working on a they try to do the remote work and make the ROV, but uh, that doesn't work or fail. Oh man, so saturation! Oh yeah, saturation diving is wild. I actually, there's actually a Parawatch article I wrote specifically about saturation not diving. Um, I think it's called yeah. uh, what is it called? Crap! Right, because it's like it's it's so freaking alien. The bends and everything about like you have to prepare, you have to spend like a fucking week in under pressure. Uh, what is it called? It's um. Let me see. I, I can't remember the name of it. The Power Watch is uh, just this weird thing I started writing for. Oh, Tower B, that's the name of it. It's just called Tower B. Tower B? Yes. Tower Dash B. But because it, it, I, I did a lot of research for it too, because I always found saturation. But um, a great source of research for this, but I should recommend it is not for the faint of heart because it is horrifying what happened and it's 100% real, which is like, oh, that always makes me leery because I don't like um, uh, that. Like, I think there are limits in horror. You're not allowed to uh, hijack real events too far. <laughs> like, like I never would use a picture mm -hmm. of an actual dead person who died within living memory. I think that's fucked up. Like, I'm not going to use like all the corpses I use are like thousands of years old. <laughs> it's like nobody cares. But like, mm -hmm. I'm not going to use a I'm not going to use mm -hmm. like a 50 year old corpse image or something. And like with real life events, I always think you have to. 
But anyway, point is that there's a event called the um, Byford Dolphin Incident, which occurred in 1985, which you might want to look up. But again, it is not for the faint of heart, and it is 100% real what happened. And it was it's with sat- one, yeah. saturation diving, and it's like oh god, like it did it, it it shows you what sort of pressure you're dealing with and what it can do to the human body, and it is terrifying. Isn't that where uh, uh, isn't that basically where they are? So basically, for people don't know, they basically sit in these tanks, hmm. uh, these like small metal rooms hmm. where they have to stay there for weeks, and so they don't keep them under the water all the time; they let them in and out of the ship. Yep. And so, and in the tank, this is the story I'm thinking about. Uh, they basically, to eat, they need to open up, uh, it's like an exchange room, a mm-hmm. small little area where they can put the turkey, close it in, right, pressurize it, mm-hmm. then they open up. It's basically, like, basically an airlock. Like, it's basically just an airlock. You're using yeah, an airlock. And they, it's almost like space and stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. The only thing is it's reverse instead of, well, I guess it's not reverse because the um, interior is the high pressure and the exterior is the low pressure environment. So yeah, yeah. same thing. It's just not a vacuum, but it's it's close enough to a vacuum compared to the inner pressure. But, uh, in this story that I'm thinking of, basically when they, they didn't actually completely shut right. the door on the outside and then when they opened the door on the inside yep. and... Yeah. And it so. it violently depressurized. Like instantaneously. Yep. Um, I saw also in the book. So, and, uh, yeah, those are things I would uh, tell people never look up unless, like, because they're, they're pretty bad. Like, what happened? But I, it gives you a sense of what sort of terrifying pressure they're dealing with and what it can do to the human body when shit goes wrong. It can, like, really screw yeah. you up. I think there was a yeah. phrase from it. Yeah, and I actually used the phrase in the article. Partially forced through a steel orifice, resulting in the bisection of his thoracabdominal thora- cavity and the violent expulsion of nearly all internal organs. Like, oh my god. Let me real quick. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the other things I didn't realize is they actually breathe at a billion oxygen. Right. Mix. Right. And uh, so. <laughs> they sound like <laughs> Donald Duck. Yeah. They sound like Donald Duck for like like. And it's very very hard to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I, that's one of the things. One thing that like I had to just ignore mm-hmm. um, for I the movie. Yes. That that's pretty funny now that you mentioned it because like in writing I remember I actually in the story I refer to that the Tower B story of like how they sound like Donald Duck. If I was doing that in film, I could not do that. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it would not fucking work. Like no. Because it just you would not be able to take it seriously, even if you could understand them, it would just wreck everything. <laughs> as soon as you can't build tension if they sound like Donald Duck. I was thinking though that'd be funny if they do a, a separate cut. <laughs> uh, it's just all reverse things. Yeah, it would it, it would immediately remind me. Have you ever seen the YouTube video of um, orcs speaking normally in Lord of the Rings? Oh yes, it would immediately be that. Yeah. It would basically be <laughs> this immediately. C- Slice out all the dramatic tension, and just be like, "Hey, boys!" Yes, I, I think it would be such an easy thing to do. I think mm-hmm. it would be a fun one. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm gonna wrap things up. We've been going for about an hour and a half, I think, now, mm-hmm. hour ish. Um, thanks for coming on. It was fun. I was actually really interested to talk about the industrial side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it's a part of 
everyday modern life that you kind of in the in the shadows a lot of people don't understand kind of what mm -hmm. the world it's it's a great source of horror too. Alien is a great example of it too, where it's just the setting is basically just uh, industrial environments. And it's it, it's great for horror. Yeah, I really like um futuristic like industrial stuff. Mm. Um, like asteroid mining and stuff like that. Right. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, Summerfeld. 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 <laughs> Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, can't wait to hear the podcast. Thanks.